Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. In this podcast, I'm going to summarize three research articles for you from the February 2018 issue of Radiology. Today's topics include the use of MRI to detect non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and low-dose CT for detection of kidney stones. Everyone knows that MRI scans are extremely noisy, and we will also discuss the relationship between MRI scanner noise and hearing protection. Before I go into more detail on those topics, I want to mention a few other topics that may be of interest to you. An article from Dr. Bem Sturm discusses alternatives to gadolinium contrast agents for MRI. The authors evaluated iron instead of gadolinium to alter the relaxivity of an experimental MRI contrast agent. We use gadolinium at present because it has a relatively large effect on T1 weighting of adjacent tissues. Iron is not as good as gadolinium. The effect on T1 signal is about half that of gadolinium. On the other hand, iron is physiologic, and humans are much more tolerant of iron injections in general. In a different article, Dr. Wang and colleagues present a meta-analysis of 17 studies looking at the use of MRI for bladder cancer staging. T1 tumors are superficial. They are treated with transurethral resection or intravesical chemotherapy. T2 tumors are invasive, treated surgically with cystectomy. The authors found that the sensitivity of MRI is very high at 90%, for distinguishing invasive versus superficial tumors. Specificity was also high, 88%. There are not too many tools that we have that achieve that level of performance, especially when averaged over 17 different studies in the literature. Studies that use diffusion MRI reported higher diagnostic performance. That is a big win for the body MRI community. I will briefly mention another article using PET MRI. That modality has been stuck in place since it was introduced in 2011. One of the major challenges is that CT provides an attenuation map that is critical for accurate PET measurement of SUV levels. We do not have that same attenuation map for MRI. This journal and others have had several articles about other advantages of PET MRI. One example is for head and neck tumors. Neck anatomy is much better seen on MRI than CT. PET helps localize those tumors. Patients have a combined PET MRI and they have a definitive answer. At the same time, Dense areas of the body, like the skull base, spine, and pelvis, cause real problems for PET MRI SUV values. Dr. Fang Liu in the radiology department at the University of Wisconsin used a deep learning computer algorithm applied to an MRI scan. The computer model generated a synthetic CT scan that could then be used to get accurate attenuation corrections for PET MRI. So, you get a single PET MRI scan and the computer generates the CT scan. Pretty interesting. Maybe it will help that modality take off a bit more. Details on those articles are in the February issue of Radiology. Now on to our main research articles for today. Our first research article is about different ways to detect fatty liver other than biopsy. Non-invasive methods for fat detection are becoming so common and accepted that in some cases we might not have a liver biopsy. The liver biopsy is the standard, of course but that biopsy samples only about one gram of tissue. Since the normal liver weighs about 1,500 grams, it is almost certain that the biopsy does not give us a very comprehensive idea of fatty changes throughout the entire liver. Moderate to severe pain occurs in 1-5% to of patients after a liver biopsy. Severe pain suggests that a significant bleed has occurred. Major bleeding that requires hospitalization after biopsy occurs after 1 in 2,500 to 1 in 10,000 biopsies. At Johns Hopkins, we did a cost-benefit analysis a number of years ago. MRI is somewhat expensive, perhaps more than biopsy costs in some centers. But when the cost of complication from a biopsy is factored in, 
MRI looks very good. In addition, we were studying pediatric patients and patients who needed multiple biopsies. The advantages of imaging looked better and better in those cases. The short title of this article is, MR Spectroscopy Fat Fraction is Superior to Controlled Attenuation Parameter for Hepatic Steatosis. The article's first author is Dr. Jürgen Rungi. Once again, the research was done in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. My first article last week also happened to be from the Netherlands, so the Dutch are really doing well in radiologic sciences. What is the background? Fatty liver disease is associated with inflammation and eventually fibrosis. Besides biopsy, there are several imaging methods to detect fat. The controlled attenuation parameter, or CAP, is a trademarked method associated with a commercial ultrasound product called FibroScan. The FibroScan test is available now worldwide and is popular with GI physicians. It can be performed in their office and takes about five minutes. If you have a FibroScan test, you get two numbers that relate to your liver stiffness and fibrosis, as well as the amount of fat in your liver. The fat is related to the CAP parameter. To measure the CAP parameter, the ultrasound waves are transmitted into the liver. If fat is present, the sound beam is attenuated more quickly. The rate of attenuation of the ultrasound beam is the CAP value. It is expressed in decibels per meter. Low attenuation of the ultrasound beam is more normal. High CAP values are associated with more fat. The number in decibels per meter have been correlated with pathology grades of the amount of fat present. Of course, MRI is an alternative to measure fat. This is done using a proton density spectroscopy sequence, or a Dixon sequence. A 2 centimeter voxel is placed in the liver for spectroscopy. The spectroscopy sequence is a steam sequence. It is acquired in a breath hold. The processing directly yields the percentage of fat in the liver relative to water content. By the way, normal fat levels are from 0 to 4%. So what was done? The authors evaluated 55 patients in 7 centers. Eligible patients were suspected of having non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Patients with chronic liver disease and alcoholic liver disease were excluded. Patients had both MRI and ultrasound CAP parameter measured the same day. In addition, some patients had both tests repeated to see if the same fat value was obtained. A biopsy was obtained in all patients. The average duration between biopsy and a non-invasive test was 27 days. On biopsy, the grades of fat range from S0 to S3. S0 is normal, 0 to 4% fat. S1 is abnormal, 5 to 33% fat. S2 is 34 to 66% fat. S3 is the most severe, more than 66% fat. The presence of fat is defined on histology. The pathologist looks for macrovesicular fat vacuoles on the slide. These are relatively easy to see, and you'll probably observe these in your beginning pathology training. The results. Of 55 patients, the average age was 52 years. 50 of 55 patients had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease on biopsy. 24 of 50 patients had S1 disease, 17 had S2, and 9 had the most severe S3 fatty liver. For the CAP measurement, the technique could not distinguish between normal and mild fatty liver, or S1. However, CAP could distinguish between S0 and S1 versus S2 or S3 fatty liver. For MRI, all of the different grades of fatty liver were distinguished. For overall correlation of fatty liver with biopsy, you remember that perfect correlation is 1.0. In this study, the CAP was at 0.56. MRI was 0.90. You can also look at the sensitivity and specificity as well as the AUC value. No matter how you look at it, MRI had better diagnostic performance than CAP 
that was statistically significant. For identifying any grade of fatty liver, that is S0 versus other grades, MRI AUC was 0.99 or almost perfect. CAP had an AUC of 0.77. The maximum possible AUC value is 1.0. What about reproducibility? As I mentioned, some patients returned on a different day for both ultrasound CAP and MRI. The agreement of the CAP measurement with itself on different days was 65%, but was 95% for MRI. Conclusion. Clearly, MRI proton density fat fraction is superior to the ultrasound CAP measurement in several respects. First, CAP did not detect early fatty liver. Second, if patients come back on another day, the CAP does not necessarily give the same fat score. That might be a problem for following patients over time. Nevertheless, CAP is done in the office and rather quickly. MRI takes a little more time and uses an expensive piece of equipment. The MRI fat fraction measurement takes only a breath hold but special software is necessary to process the spectroscopy result. You might not have a physicist who can do this at all. Finally, the CAP test is performed along with measurements that reflect the amount of fibrosis in the liver. Greater fibrosis is related to more stiffness. The FibroScan test gives both stiffness and fatty liver estimates in that same five-minute test. For MRI, we need to do elastography, but that requires extra equipment in the scanner room in addition to the software. At present, the European Association for the Study of Liver Guidelines say that MRI is a gold standard for non-invasive liver fat measurement. This study confirms that opinion, and I think the authors have an important result. In the end, I do not expect us to move from an office-based measurement of fatty liver and fibrosis to using the MRI scanner for most patients. However, there will be specialty centers and research protocols that require the best accuracy. Those centers will be testing drugs and following patients after treatment. In those settings, MRI should be used instead of the FibroScan test. Our second research article touches nearly all of us. The title is Evaluation of Kidney Stones with Reduced Radiation Dose. The authors compare kidney stone CT from 2011 to that done in 2015. The authors are from Yale and Massachusetts General Hospital. Staff at the American College of Radiology also participated. The first author is Karen Wiesenthal. The second author is Dr. Christopher Moore at Yale. Background. With CT, there are two primary areas where we can lower radiation dose on a routine basis. The first proven application is low-dose chest for lung cancer screening. The other protocol with great acceptance for low-dose is for kidney stones. What do we mean by low-dose? Three millisieverts or less. What is the evidence for this? Almost 10 years ago, a meta-analysis demonstrated that low-dose CT had high sensitivity and specificity for kidney stone evaluation. That technology, more than 10 years old at the time, has now improved. This means that all sites should be able to implement a low-dose kidney stone protocol. I went back to some of those original research articles about low-dose kidney CT. The images are fairly noisy and not so pleasant to look at. If you have looked at a low-dose chest CT, then you understand the appearance of low-dose kidney stone CT images. While not pretty, they are effective. What was done? The authors evaluated the American College of Radiology Dose Index Registry. This radiation dose registry is an outstanding program. If your site is not using it, I strongly encourage you to look it up and participate. Your site sends CT dose data to the ACR. The data is anonymized and stored in a database. Importantly, you receive reports back comparing the dose at your site relative to other sites in the registry. In this study, the authors looked at radiation dose from 2011 to 2012 for kidney stone examinations. They compared the radiation dose to CT scans done from 2015 to 2016. 
This covered more than 100,000 CT scans at 328 facilities. The challenging part was to parse out that the CT scan was done for identifying the presence or absence of kidney stone. Patients come to the emergency room with flank pain, but they do not usually tell us their diagnosis before the CT scan is done. The ER staff gives us a wide differential diagnosis, or perhaps just a nonspecific reason for ordering the abdominal CT. Despite this, the authors went to great lengths to parse out the descriptors that applied to flank pain and to evaluate for kidney stone. Then, they compared radiation doses to see if there was a dose reduction over a four-year interval. That period of time roughly corresponded to increased publicity about image-gently campaigns. There was also negative publicity about excess radiation in national newspapers, so radiologists should have got the message about lowering radiation dose. The results. In short, it is not clear that as a group, we as radiologists are getting the message. There was some reduction in radiation dose over that four-year period. The median DLP went from 690 to 588, or 14% less. One might think that is not too bad. Unfortunately, it is like the guy who is smoking five packs of cigarettes a day and cuts back by 20% to four packs a day. It is still not very good. The bad news, at a median dose of 588, that roughly corresponds to three times the recommended dose of 200 DLP for a low-dose kidney protocol. Looking at it another way, the increased use of low-dose protocols was increased by only 5% over the four-year interval. That's about 1% per year, about the interest rate in my savings account, but I'm not very happy about that rate either. Some more bad news. About 20% of kidney stone CT examinations were performed at doses of 1,000 DLP or more, equal to 15 millisieverts. Even within one facility, the dose ranged by plus or minus 50%. Why are these doses so high? Maybe it is because our patients are very large. A higher DLP is needed for large patients. The authors evaluated this for centers that transmitted information that allowed estimates of patient size. These size-specific dose estimates correlated very well with the DLP. The average size-specific dose estimate from 151 facilities looks to be about 12 millisieverts, much higher than the recommended 3 millisieverts effective dose. Conclusion Should we conclude that things are going the right way with lower radiation dose throughout the United States? Or perhaps that it remains remarkable that more than 90% of kidney stone examinations are still not done with a low-dose technique. An editorial by Drs. Alcadi and Saltabeva from Zurich accompanies the main article. If we look at their opinion, not enough is being done. They regard the relatively high doses for kidney stone CT as a lost opportunity for the field. I would have to agree. There are more than 2 million emergency department visits per year in the United States related to kidney stone pain. If you were a patient, you might be okay if the first kidney stone examination had a 10 millisievert dose. But 20% of patients have recurrent stones. They may have a cumulative dose of more than 50 millisieverts per year from repeat CT scanning. After that first CT, you are pretty confident that your next episode is also caused by a stone. At that point, you certainly want the low-dose scan. I suspect that some of the fault is in our limited communications between departments and our hospitals. As radiologists, do we confidently know that the emergency room physician wants a kidney stone CT scan? Or is the request more vague, perhaps for flank and abdominal pain? In that case, you would be forced to do a comprehensive abdominal CT. One approach may be to educate the emergency department. Tell them that you have a specific protocol for CT stones. Instead of simply specifying the symptoms, like flank pain, they should order an exact CT stone protocol. Your technologists should also be educated that the exam should have a DLP of about 200. That corresponds to an effective dose of about 3 millisieverts. 
more progress can be made. The last article in today's series addresses the potential for hearing loss following an MRI scan. The short title of the article is Temporary Hearing Threshold Shift in Healthy Volunteers with Hearing Protection Caused by 3T MRI. The first author is Dr. Chuao Jin. The authors are a collaboration between radiology and biomedical engineering at Jiao Tong University in China. This is a very carefully performed and well-written study. The high quality of this study is becoming increasingly representative of the massive amount of research coming to our journal from China. Most recently, we are also seeing terrific radiological research coming from South Korea. Background. Probably every radiologist has been asked why an MRI scanner makes so much noise. The reason is that there are vibrations of the gradient coils due to the rapidly switching electrical currents passing through them. The vibrations are radiated into the air as sound waves. The loudest sequences are the echoplanar sequences, up to 120 decibels. That is the noise level of a jackhammer. I know jackhammers are very loud, but most of us are exposed to a jackhammer for only a few minutes. How about rock concerts? Those would be longer exposures. Rock concerts are routinely around 115 decibels. What's the loudest rock concert on record? Remember that loudness doubles for every 10 decibels. The Who, with Pete Townshend at lead guitar, was recorded at 126 decibels. One of the loudest ever recorded was by Kiss, at twice this loudness, or 136 decibels. People like my friend Elliot, who go to a lot of rock concerts, need to take care to avoid hearing loss. The easiest way is to wear foam earplugs, as we do for MRI patients. Foam earplugs reduce sound levels by 21 decibels. Purpose. So why do this study? Two reasons. First, prior reports are inconsistent about loss of hearing following an MRI scan. But those studies have included patients who may have had hearing loss due to their underlying disease. In the appropriate setting, testing for auditory hearing loss was thought to be sensitive for the presence of a brain tumor. Second, there is no doubt that MRI scanners have gotten louder over the years as pulse sequences get more advanced and as we move to higher field strengths. Most importantly, the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, has limits for noise levels. It turns out for a one-hour duration, the OSHA limit is 105 decibels. The routine MRI in this study was above this level, about 110 to 115 decibels for some sequences. So fortunately, foam earplugs were used for volunteers in this study. Remember, those who reduce the sound level by about 21 decibels to about 90 decibels or below the OSHA limit. The authors evaluated 26 healthy young adults with an average age of 22. The authors were very thorough. All subjects had an ear examination beforehand to make sure the ear canals were not already occluded by wax. Hearing tests were performed on all of the subjects before the MRI. These tests were done by using an automated auditory brainstem response system. That sort of system is also used for infants to test for hearing deficits. It involves placing electrodes on the scalp, giving low auditory pulses, and then looking for a response that the brain detected the sound. The study subjects then underwent a one-hour MRI study at 3T of the brain. The sequences lasted 51 minutes, and the average decibel level was measured with and without subjects in the bore of the scanner. The average decibel level was about 110. The subjects were tested 20 minutes after the MRI and then 25 days later after the MRI. Both ears were independently evaluated. The results. So what happened? 20 minutes after the MRI, there was a significant hearing loss of about 5 decibels compared to before the MRI. Remember again that every 10 decibels represents a doubling of the sound level. 
so five decibels is certainly more of a hearing loss than we would like to have. The good news is that at 25 days, the hearing had completely returned to the baseline levels prior to the MRI. Conclusion. Auditory testing is certainly not within the expertise of most radiologists, including me. I contacted an expert in this field to help on the explanation of what was happening. Dr. Richard Salvi is at the Center for Hearing and Deafness at the University of Buffalo, State University of New York. Dr. Salvi is a professor of otolaryngology and neurology. He has published more than 180 peer-reviewed articles about hearing and deafness. With his colleague, Adam Shepard, they wrote an editorial for us in the February issue. Most importantly, Dr. Salvi starts the editorial by indicating that we can be reassured that if our patients are provided with ear protection for MRI, there should be no permanent hearing loss from a one-hour MRI examination. He goes a bit further. Since some of the newer pulse sequences are even louder, up to 130 decibels, there are options that we have available for improved earplugs if we need them. Dr. Salvi offers one word of caution for us. There are certain patients who have sensory hypersensitivity disorders. They are more sensitive to loud noises compared to you and me. Some of these patients may be routinely encountered, such as patients with autism, fibromyalgia, and Williams syndrome. Williams syndrome involves dysmorphic facial features or elfin facies, intellectual disability, and supervalvular aortic stenosis. You probably remember those associations, but the one we did not learn about was acoustic sensitivity. For these patients, even moderate sound levels of 60 to 70 decibels may be intolerable. You can read more details about this topic in the February 2018 issue of Radiology. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blemke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.